0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo.
1: Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Uh, the Wellness Community recently joined forces with Gilda's Club to become the largest provider of cancer support in the U.S. and around the world. Our services are now offered at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Uh, On today's show, which is being brought to you by Millennium, um, Morphotech, and Novartis Oncology, we're going to talk about the fourth leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States. I'm talking about pancreatic cancer, which has been uh, certainly in the news recently in light of uh, Patrick Swayze's untimely passing. Uh, But before we jump into today's today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines.
2: I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. A recent study suggests that no matter how hormone replacement therapy is given, it increases the risk of ovarian cancer. Hormone replacement therapy, consisting of estrogen, progesterone, or both, and used to relieve the symptoms of menopause, has been linked to breast cancer and could now be tied to an increased risk in ovarian cancer. Researchers studied more than 900,000 women who were 50 to 79 years of age from 1995 to 2005. None of them had tumors that grew in response to hormones, and none had their ovaries removed during a hysterectomy or for other reasons. During the study's follow-up period, doctors found more than 3,000 ovarian tumors. Women who were currently using hormones were almost 40% more likely to develop such tumors. The link between hormone therapy and ovarian cancer was apparent regardless of the type of hormone used or how long they were used. Researchers stated that the risk of ovarian cancer is one of several factors to take into account when assessing the risk and benefit of hormone use. In other news, men who drink heavily may be raising their risk of developing prostate cancer. The study also found the drug finasteride, which can help lower a man's risk of the disease, appears unable to undo the damage of heavy drinking. The findings come from a clinical trial of nearly 11,000 men looking at whether finasteride lowered the risk of prostate cancer over seven years. 2,219 were diagnosed with prostate cancer, and 8,791 of them remained cancer-free throughout the study. The researchers found that men who drank heavily were twice as likely as non-drinkers to develop aggressive prostate tumors. The risk was seen in both men who received finasteride and those given a placebo. In addition, when it came to less aggressive, slower-growing prostate tumors, finasteride cut non-drinkers and moderate drinkers' risk by 43%. The drug did nothing, however, for heavier drinkers. While heavy drinking may need to be added to the short list of prostate cancer factors, additional studies need to be done to confirm the findings.
1: As I mentioned at the top of the show, pancreatic cancer is the fourth leading cause of cancer deaths in the U.S. Uh, It actually has the highest mortality rate of all major cancers because it is one of the most difficult to detect. On today's show, we're going to talk about why pancreatic cancer is so hard to detect, Uh, its risk factors, treatment options, and much more. Uh, We are joined today by two wonderful guests who are here with us to help us shed light on pancreatic cancer. First, we have Jeff Ross. Jeff is a pancreatic cancer survivor as well as a volunteer for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. He's uh, here with us today to share his story and not only offer tips and advice but also provide hope to listeners who may be affected by the disease.
3: Welcome, Jeff. Well, thank you, Kim. We are also joined
1: today by Anitra Engabretsen, who is the Director of Patient and Liaison Services, or PALS, at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. The Pancreatic Cancer Action Network is a nationwide network of people dedicated to working together to advance research, support patients, and create hope for those affected by pancreatic cancer. Thank you for being here, Anitra. Thank you for having me. So, you know, we've got a lot to cover on the show today, so we are going to jump right in. Um, Jeff, you were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer over six years ago. Um, Take us back to the day that you were diagnosed. Tell us what it was like to learn that you had pancreatic cancer and, and maybe talk a little bit about your conversations with the doctor and, and what kind of prognosis they gave you.
3: You know, it, it, and it's interesting because you you already mentioned the uh, the difficulty um, that pancreatic cancer has in just its diagnosis. Um, I actually did not receive a diagnosis until I came out of surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I had. It, it, because it, pancreatic cancer is very asymptomatic, it's difficult uh, to even know when to go see a doctor. Um, I always have my annual physicals, and that's where everything first came to light, that there was some kind of problem. And they uh, the doctors attempted to do a needle biopsy of what they found on the head of my pancreas, and they couldn't get any live cells, so um, they made the decision that the... Whipple procedure, which is the standard um, surgery for pancreatic cancer, would have to be done just to remove whatever was on my pancreas. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife, who at that time was my girlfriend, a uh, critical care nurse, she heard the, the, the word malignancy as a possibility. I never heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went in on July 1st of 2003 to have the Whipple procedure done, and after 12 hours of resection and, and the entire... Uh, Uh, surgical protocol,
1: Um,
3: I was in the recovery room coming around and I looked at my surgeon and sort of shook my head, well, and he just shook his no and walked out. So that that was kind of how I got my diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, The initial conversations that we had after that, um, once I was out of the recovery room, was a prognosis that is generally given in most cases and that's anywhere from six to 12 months.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, Anita, is that... Is that the kind of prognosis that is common for pancreatic cancer patients? And if so, why, why, why is that?
4: Yeah, that is a common prognosis that patients receive from their physicians, and oftentimes people even hear a shorter time frame from, than that yeah. and are told that maybe they only have three to six months to live. Yeah. And that's because pancreatic cancer really is an aggressive cancer, and as it's been mentioned, it's difficult to diagnose and oftentimes isn't diagnosed until it's advanced. Unfortunately, there's really no early detection for the disease, and the symptoms are very vague. So by the time it's been diagnosed, often it has started to spread. And so because of this, many patients are given a 3-to-6-month or even 6-to-12-month time frame when they're diagnosed.
1: And is it because it starts to spread that patients start to have some symptoms?
4: That can be the case, yes. Oftentimes one of the symptoms that gets patients to the doctor is jaundice, which is a yellowing of the eyes and skin. Mm -hmm. And usually if people are experiencing that symptom, it's become more advanced. But one thing that I think is really important to remember that even though people hear these these time frames, there are survivors all around the country, just like Jeff, who we're talking to, who was given, have been given a similar prognosis, and while it's a disease that's serious and needs a lot more attention for funding, for research, yes. there is hope for people who are diagnosed.
1: Jeff, your story really is a miracle story, isn't it?
3: it oh, it is. I am so blessed to, uh, to be talking to you almost six and a half years after my diagnosis.
1: Yeah, that really is astonishing. Um, Anitra, I know you're with an organization called Panc- PANCAN, it's the pancreatic. Cancer Action Network. You've been a friend of the wellness community for many, many years. Um, How did PanCan get started? And um, tell us what kind of work you do at the organization.
4: The Pancreatic Cancer Action Network was actually started by three individuals who met online. They all had a family member who had passed as pancreatic cancer, and they met and came together because they all had a similar experience, that they didn't have a place to go for information or for support about the disease. And that was 10 years ago, this year we're celebrating our 10-year
1: anniversary. Fantastic. Uh, Yeah,
4: that's great. And now um, our organization is really the leading organization in the fight against pancreatic cancer Mm -hmm. because we have a comprehensive approach to fighting the disease, which makes what we do just a little bit unique. We have we fund research directly through a variety of different research grants. We also do a lot of advocacy work um, in order to try and increase the federal funding for pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. We have a patient services program, our, our PALS program, where patients and their family members can turn for information, resources, and support at any point throughout their pancreatic cancer journey. And then we also have an incredibly wide network of volunteers around the country in our community outreach program that work to raise funds but also truly to raise awareness about the disease in their communities. And
1: and how long have you been there, Anitra?
4: I have been at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network for about four and a half years now. And
1: you run that PALS program, is that right?
4: I'm act- I've run the PALS program for the last couple of years, but I've um, worked in the PALS program since I started here.
1: Wonderful. And tell us, um, Anitra, how many people are diagnosed each year with pancreatic cancer?
4: Um, the projected um, number of people to be diagnosed this year is around 42,000.
1: 42,000. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a big number.
4: It is a big number, and um, it's a disease that could really use a lot, a lot more attention in the media and as far
1: as funding from the government goes. Great. Well, I'm glad we're talking about it today, Jeff. Uh, you've you've shared with us your pretty amazing story of of, of, of surviving uh, pancreatic cancer six and a half years, which certain, certainly is against all of the odds. Um, how did you find PanCan, and and how have they helped you through this uh, through this journey?
3: Well, it, it's because of my situation, not knowing that. Um, that i had pancreatic cancer until i had already gone through surgery yeah. um i was kind of broadsided after the fact um i went to pancan i mean all the research that i did prior to my surgery was really dealing with the surgery itself i wasn't even looking at cancer i mean um and and i think i kind of went into denial early and just sort of stayed there it was a it was a comfortable place to be mm. so after my surgery i found pancan when i was looking for alternative um Oh, alternative means of caring for myself, uh, it, it's a very rigorous surgery that you go through and trying to find different dietary supplements and, and, and ways to take care of yourself post-surgery and then pre-chemotherapy um, and radiation. That's when I found PANCAN. Uh, I used it as a resource online more than phoning in. Since that time, what it's done for me is it's given me a great way to pay forward my great fortune.
1: And in what ways do you do that, Jeff?
3: I do that by volunteering for the um, Survivor and Caregiver um, Network, which is actually under PALS. And I do a lot of phone, what I call phone intervention work, where um, if you call PANCAN and ask to speak to someone who's gone through um, surgery or gone through chemo and has had pancreatic cancer, you might be a patient, you might be a a caregiver, a family member. Um, They'll give you several numbers, and mine will be one of them, and people will call me. And I've probably spoken over the past five years. I keep my own records, but approximately 150 different people. Wow. From all over the country. From all over the country, and uh, and as well as I also do a lot of speaking for the organization, um, going up to the organization whenever whenever there's a need to have a survivor there.
1: Right, right. Do you do you do you think that um, that obviously I think sharing your story gives people hope, but do you do you ever get a sense, Jeff, it might give people false hope when you look at the statistics around pancreatic cancer? I mean, most folks are most folks are not going to live six and a half years. Right now with this disease, how do you how do you kind of manage that in terms of? Seeing you know people? That,
3: and that's a difficult question I've been asked it many times before. Um, what I try to do when someone does call me is find out first of all what their needs are yeah you know, what what because there's so many of them are looking for answers they're not necessarily looking for cures I mean I think most people by the time I speak to them they're they know They know the the, the the figures. they know the mortality rate. Um, the chances of making it to my point up the uh, past five years is is only about five point one percent and th- that that's an enormous mortality rate. So most people have an idea of what they're up against. What they're looking from me is more um, what is my story, which gives them hope. yeah. And also specific um they'll ask specific questions. I've spoken to people that were stage four that were um they they knew they only had a, a few remaining days um such you know sort of like Randy Pouch, who went public yeah. and and was very open about the fact that he knew his days were numbered yeah. um, I don't believe it's really giving false hope because if there's any hope, that's a good thing that's a real thing. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Um, Anitra, we only have a minute or two until we go to the break, but can you just tell us a little bit more um, about the PALS program patient and liaison services there at PanCAN?
4: Absolutely. The PALS program is an information and support resource for pancreatic cancer patients and their family members. Mm -hmm. And the way that it works is that people are able to either call or email into our office and they get matched one-on-one with a highly trained staff member called a PALS associate. Mm-hmm. And then that PALS associate is able to provide them with any type of information they're looking for from information about treatment options to finding a clinical trial or learning about side effect and symptom management or looking for support to be matched to someone just like Jeff through our survivor and caregiver network. So people are able to contact us as many times as they need throughout their journey and continue to be matched up with that same PALs associate so they have some continued case
1: management and they can build upon the relationship that they started. So you have a department of people there who've been trained in talking to folks around the country when they call in?
4: Yes we have five um, trained staff members in that position right now and um, in addition to what we're able to provide them over the phone we also have an educational library and different educational materials that we provide free of charge.
1: And that that information is found online, or is that how, uh, is that information mailed out to folks, or how does yeah. that, how is that?
4: Well, there we do have a lot of information um, content on our website. The booklets that we provide, people can call in or email us to order them. There's also sort of a standard educational packet that can be ordered online, and. Um, it's just a very easy process, fill out a form, and then it's sent out to you to whomever
1: orders it the next day, free of charge and are the folks who are on the phone are they are they trained counselors?
4: They're not counselors, we're not medical professionals, um, but they are all folks who have undergone an extensive training process in understanding pancreatic cancer as a disease as well as handling um, potentially some high high emotional situations
1: Got it, got and it great this is uh frankly speaking about cancer with the wellness community we're talking today about a pancreatic cancer which can obviously be a very challenging diagnosis but we're learning the facts today we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back you're listening to voice america health and wellness
0: Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call one 793 well or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. If you want to put the pet back in your step, Chad Lafferty says just what you're looking for. Dance is life, life is dance. It's only about dance. It's about moving through life with style, gaining awareness of the never-ending, ever-flowing movement that accompanies all of life's activities. Dance is life. Life is dance broadcast every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Radio Network. Be sure to tune in and tap into the limitless healing that dance can provide. Can't stop now. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community.
2: Welcome
1: back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo, and today we're talking about pancreatic cancer and what you or a loved one can do if you've been affected by this disease. Uh, I'm here with um, Anitra Engabretsen, who is the Director of Patient and Liaison Services at the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, and Jeff Ross, a six-plus-year pancreatic cancer survivor, as well as a volunteer for Pancan, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. Uh, Anitra, what are some uh, of the risk factors for being diagnosed with with pancreatic cancer? What should folks be thinking about?
4: Well, there are only actually a few well-defined risk factors for pancreatic cancer. One of them, and probably the most preventable of those risk factors, is smoking. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of times people think of smoking and associate that with lung cancer, but even with diseases um, with pancreatic cancer, um, smokers have twice the risk of developing the disease compared to non-smokers.
1: So are you saying that there's a direct link between smoking and pancreatic cancer?
4: Yes. There, There has been research to show that the two are linked.
1: Wow. I think a lot of people would not know that. Absolutely. I think that's really um, interesting.
4: It is. And one of the other risk factors is uh, family history of the disease. It's estimated that approximately 10% of pancreatic cancer cases are likely linked to family, family history.
1: Of pancreatic cancer specifically? Correct. And do we know of li- links to any other cancers?
4: There are some genetic syndromes that have been associated with pancreatic cancer. They're likely not the exact the specific cause of the
1: disease. Okay.
4: For example, there's the, um, one of the genetic syndromes that people think of that's commonly associated with breast cancer is also associated with pancreatic cancer. Mm, Okay. Um, Additionally, the race and ethnicity can be a risk factor. African Americans and the Ashkenazi Jewish populations are at a higher risk of developing the disease than the general population.
1: Do we have any idea why that is?
4: Um, with African Americans, the association is not quite as clear. Mm-hmm. Um, some do believe, though, with the, with the Jewish population, that it may be associated with that breast cancer gene link.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's
4: also more common in that group.
1: In the Ashkenazi Jewish community. Correct. Okay. Other risk factors, Anitra?
4: There are a few other risk factors. Um, chronic pancreatitis, which is long-term inflammation of the pancreas, has been linked, though the association there um, between pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer isn't quite as clear. Mm -hmm. Additionally, diabetes um, can be a risk factor for pancreatic cancer, but it can also be a symptom. And so that's something that needs some additional research. I think it's also important just to mention that a lot of people who are diagnosed with pancreatic cancer don't have any of these risk factors at all. All So it it definitely shows an area where more research should
1: be done. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, did you have any family history of pancreatic cancer or any of these other defined risk factors for pancreatic cancer?
3: Well, not, not pancreatic cancer, but the genetics, um, breast syndrome. My mother passed away from breast cancer back in 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm of Jewish heritage. Mm-hmm. And um back in the military service, back in the late sixties, early seventies, I smoked until I was twenty six. I'm sixty now, so um and, and in the reading that I've done and the and the research I've done, um, I've seen that just because you weren't a heavy smoker your entire life, early incidents of smoking can be a factor years later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, Anitra, we've talked a little bit about risk factors for pancreatic cancer, so tell us a little bit about the symptoms of pancreatic cancer. Are there sort of trends in the, uh, in the symptoms that we're seeing, or how do folks eventually discover that they have pancreatic cancer, given the fact that there is no specific or defined diagnostic test for the disease?
4: Right. The symptoms for pancreatic cancer are actually quite, um, quite vague symptoms that can often be attributed to more common diseases, yeah. things like back pain, abdominal pain, um, some digestive issues, perhaps some unexplained weight loss. Those are some of the more common symptoms that oftentimes um, people are looking for a different diagnosis with those symptoms because it doesn't trigger an immediate thought to maybe this is pancreatic cancer. The one that does trigger a diagnosis oftentimes is when patients become jaundiced, and that's when um, they have some yellowing of the skin and the eyes. And usually at that point, the, the cancer is probably more advanced, but it's really the most obvious symptom of the disease.
1: And, and once some other things are rolled out, because I imagine that's oftentimes the process, mm-hmm. once other things are rolled out, how do they, they eventually actually detect the, the, the cancer. Do they do a biopsy? Do they do blood tests? How do they eventually you know, realize that it may be pancreatic cancer?
4: There isn't a blood test that can be used for diagnosing pancreatic cancer. Um, what's most common is uh, a well-defined CT scan can mm-hmm. oftentimes detect a mass, mm-hmm. or in some cases, they need to do a different type of scan, which is called an endoscopic ultrasound, but what that is is when they put a... Um, a light and an ultrasound probe down a person's mouth and throat into their abdomen, and they can do an ultrasound internally of the pancreas mm-hmm. and potentially see some some smaller lesions that way. Mm-hmm. There isn't a defined um, diagnostic tool that works for, for every case, mm-hmm. so it's oftentimes several tests that need to be done to lead to a diagnosis. And then ultimately to really determine what type of pancreatic cancer, if they do find a mass, a biopsy would be necessary to be able to be certain of what they're dealing with.
1: And are, is there, are there any better diagnostic tests being researched or on the horizon, Anitra?
4: There's nothing that's on the immediate horizon mm-hmm. that I know of, but mm-hmm. that's certainly an area where research is being done and more research is probably necessary.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it. Jeff, tell us again what were your what were your what were your symptoms? What led to this kind of exploration and to the
3: discovery that you had pancreatic cancer? Well, the symptoms that I had—I mean, I've always had an over-acid stomach. I mean, that's just life <laughs> life in the uh, in in the, in, uh, in my generation. Yeah. Um, but I was having a little bit more acid reflux at, at that time, and I didn't really think much of it. But one day i bent over in the in the backyard and i had such a shooting pain through my abdomen that it literally knocked me out i mean i mm. fell over and i was out for probably 2 minutes oh wow so, so i was due for my annual physical i went in um everything was fine the doctor understood what I what my symptoms were, she wasn't sure what had happened. So she said, "Let's let's run your blood." My blood work came back the next day, and I got an emergency phone call from her office to come right in. And what they found was my cholesterol, which I've never had a problem, was way high. Um, my liver functions were out of whack, uh, and what they assumed it was is probably a gallbladder problem maybe gallstones so i was rushed through an ultrasound i was rushed with ct scan pet scans nothing was found they didn't find any any evidence of gallstones so i had one of the um endoscopic ultrasounds done and they found that there was scar tissue in my um... uh... My, uh... uh your pancreas no not my pancreas but in my uh, gallbladder okay and they weren't certain why it was there yeah. but um... They were, they wanted to schedule me for what's called an ERCP, which is where they put an actual scope down you, and they're looking real time at what's going on, and they can actually manipulate in there. Well, the next day, the day prior to that is when I went jaundiced. In the course of about ten minutes, um, I went in. They put a stent in my um, gallbladder to just open it up to take care of the jaundice, and that's where they found the. Um, the mass on the head of my pancreas and that's when they attempted to do eleven needle biopsies and because there was so much scar tissue they couldn't get any live cells so that's why they could not come up with an actual diagnosis unfortunately uh, the disruption of those eleven uh... needle biopsies created a bad case of pancreatitis the next day that lasted for eight days
1: and and it was then at that point that they decided to do the surgery,
3: right? Because what they decided was, regardless of what the mass was, whether it was malignant or non-malignant, and as I said, in my mind it was it was just non-malignant. They needed to get rid of that mass, and they needed to remove my gallbladder because my entire um, common bile duct area was was backing up, and so that that's the reason I was scheduled for the surgery.
1: And you didn't, at any point during all of this, you didn't think perhaps somewhere in your mind that you might have pancreatic cancer?
3: I didn't, the cancer never even came to my mind. And yet cancer runs in my family. So, um, you know, my mother died of breast cancer. My dad had skin cancer. Uh, my youngest sister had thyroid cancer. But I was healthy as a horse. So I never even, it never even entered my mind.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, Anitra, do you think it's, uh, it, it, you know, it, are you hearing from folks that it's, it's common that they go through all of these different kind of tests and surgeries and questions before folks actually arrive at this diagnosis. Is that a a common occurrence for people?
4: It is pretty common for people to undergo various theories about what their diagnosis is. Um, Jeff mentioned gallstones and gallbladder problems and that's an incredibly common um, idea of what the diagnosis might be before undergoing a lot of testing just like he described until they eventually find that it is pancreatic cancer.
1: And so do you find that folks are going or go moving around from sort of a primary care doctor, an internist, to a GI doctor because of some of those symptoms, and they're kind of being moved around to different experts?
4: Um, I would say primarily the primary care physician and then a gastroenterologist or a gastrointestinal doctor. Those are the most common. Um, physicians involved
1: in that stage. And is it often the GI, the gastro, gastroenterologist, you know, GI doc who, who eventually gets them down the path of exploring the question of pancreatic cancer?
4: Yep, that's, that's quite common. And oftentimes if they, they do find something on the pancreas that maybe the gastrointestinal physician picks up on, um, they may, as, as was the case with Jeff, they may need to undergo some type of surgery in order to really see what's going on if they can't get a biopsy.
1: Say that again. If they can't, if they can't get a biopsy, they may to, may need to do more exploratory surgery. Correct
3: to find out what's happening. Right. And and you know, you uh, mind... If I may add here, yeah. um, with all the phone work that I've done, I've I've seen kind of some some cautions out there for for the listeners here. Yeah. Um, it seems that a lot of of oh I I, I would just say general GPs. Um, when they have a patient coming in and the patient's complaining of the acid reflux and hasn't gone jaundiced and hasn't had a lot of abdominal pain, a lot of the people that I've spoken to have been put on some type of uh, prescriptive antacid yeah. and told to come back in two to three months and see how things are. Mm-hmm. And I've I've heard that many, many, many times, and I'm not hearing that so much from people who have gone to a gastroenterologist but from people that are going to see their, their general practitioners because they're not familiar with um, the disease and they're not, is they're not, not looking outside the box, as it were. Mm-hmm.
4: Absolutely, and if I could just add to what Jeff just said, that that is very common, that the general practitioner may not be thinking about pancreatic cancer mm-hmm. while they're in the process of trying to understand what's going on. And so hopefully the person can get to a gastroenterologist or a GI doctor who does think about that as a possible diagnosis. And and can can make a diagnosis before having to do something like an so if you're having some of
1: these exploratory symptoms, surgery. Yeah, and if you're having some of these symptoms that are really persisting, you really do need to go to a. It sounds like you really need to go to a gastroenterologist and make sure they're really aware of all the range of these symptoms that you're experiencing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. Uh, I'm Kim Tebel, Though today we're talking about a pancreatic cancer. We know it can be. Um, a very uh, a difficult diagnosis, a challenging diagnosis, has a high, uh, high mortality rate, and, and unfortunately, no real definitive diagnostic test uh, uh, for pancreatic cancer. Um, we are uh, t- talking with a couple of experts on the disease, including uh, Jeff Ross, who is actually a six-year pancreatic cancer survivor. We're going to take a quick break here on Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will be right back.
0: helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions. How to get comfortable with new physical realities. How to reassure worried family members or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and education and hope. business channel you're listening to frankly speaking about cancer with the wellness community an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer now here's your host kim Tibaldo, president and ceo of the wellness community
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're talking about pancreatic cancer. I'm here with Jeff Ross, who is a six-plus-year pancreatic cancer survivor, as well as a volunteer for the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, PANCAN. Uh, We also have today uh, Anitra Engabretsen, who is Director of Patient and Liaison Services uh, at PANCAN. We have talked a lot about detection uh, of pancreatic cancer, unfortunately not a good diagnostic test, and um, uh, and we also talked about some of the risk factors for pancreatic cancer for those who are just joining us. Um, I want to go ahead and turn the discussion now to uh, treatment for pancreatic cancer. Jeff, you talked about the fact that you had a lengthy 12-hour surgery and that going into that surgery you didn't even know that you had pancreatic cancer, and they, they discovered uh, in the surgery that you did have pancreatic cancer. Once they completed the surgery... Then what was your treatment protocol? Um, and then I'll also ask if you, anyone ever talked to you about participating in a, in a clinical
3: trial. Okay, Kim. Um, the, 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 the good news of, of the surgery, at, at the, the time of surgery, and one reason I was in for 12 hours, typically uh, most people I've spoken to the average surgical time is about eight hours. Mm-hmm. Um, when they sent the head of my pancreas off to the lab, to find out whether it was malignant or not, uh, the malignancy uh, came back and um, the margins were showing more cancer cells. So they took another slice, sent it off to the lab, and it came back the same way. They did that three times. And so what they knew was the the tumor was removed, or at least the main tumor was removed, but I had cancerous cells throughout my pancreas. Mm -hmm. So they recommended... Um, that I go in for, um, radiation, okay. radiation treatment, which six years ago, that was the main, um, type of treatment for pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. In fact, the radiology oncologist that I was sent to, um, came right out and said that chemotherapy was pretty much ineffective for, um, for, uh, pancreatic cancer, which my wife and I decided that. We weren't going to buy into that, and we started getting second and third opinions until we found the oncologists that we wanted. Yeah. Um, and when asked what type of therapy I wanted, knowing then what I was up against, I, we asked for the most um, aggressive therapy we could possibly get, yeah. and I got my wish. Um, it was 37 radiation treatments <laughs> and chemotherapy over the course of four months. Wow. Wow. And what was that like for you, Jess? You know, it's people ask me that, and especially when I do my phone work, yeah. um, it's not terrible. It, and And I say that because the mind is kind and doesn 't let you remember you know, <laughs> painful at uh, times that 's why women obviously go through childbirth more than once. <laughs> um, but when I look back over it, other than being very tired, losing weight, I went from one hundred and eighty pounds down to one hundred and thirty five pounds wow. um, the The chemotherapies that are generally used in pancreatic cancer are not as toxic as say those for Breast cancer. Um, the nausea factor is a lot less. Uh, hair loss is minimal. Um, so generally, it's not quite as terrible as a lot of people would would generally think of chemo and radiation. Um, was it a cakewalk? No, but it wasn't terrible. Especially if you have the right attitude and you're and you're fighting for your life and you know that's where you're going to end up. Um, it you you just you live through it.
1: And, and was that it, Jeff? Was that the end of, was that the end of your treatment? Have you had any? any issues since that time? Have you had side effects issues? Have you had to have any other kinds of treatments or procedures?
3: Well, Kim, it's, it, it's interesting that, that you ask that. In actuality, yes. About a year and a half after my initial surgery, I had to go back in, and I went to my um, original surgeon because um, I was having trouble digestive trouble, which after the Whipple procedure, because of all the resection, is, is normal anyway. Mm. But the damage that the radiation did to my stomach uh, we had to go in and do what's called a gastro, um, uh, I, can't, I can't even remember the, the name of the term, <laughs> but basically what they do is they bring up some of your lower intestine, plug it into your stomach so that your stomach will drain properly. Okay. And that was the first issue I had. The second issue I had is I started becoming a hyper, a hypoglycemic mm. and more often than normal. So I was finally sent to an um, endocrinologist and it was determined that I developed type 2 diabetes, which adult onset diabetes, I believe, affects 20, 25 million Americans. It's not uncommon, but this was uh, determined to be caused by the radiation over the tail of my pancreas, and which is where insulin is is generated. Um, so I am now a type two diabetic, and because of that, now I also have some hypertension. Um, it's 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 all manageable. I take um, uh, pancreatic enzymes on a, on a per meal basis. I take daily uh, two pills a day for the type two diabetes and control it that way, and one pill for the hypertension.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Okay so but pretty manageable i mean nothing you know really kind of just side effects but Absolutely nothing else really manageable
3: cancer. and and that's one that's one thing i try to instill to the uh, the individuals that i that i get to talk to on the phone yeah. is that you know they who have gone through the surgery they're concerned about what what it's going to be afterwards because if you would, if you do research on the internet you'll find lots of misinformation and you'll find lots of bad stories people tend to want to discuss the problems as opposed to the 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 positives, um, and so people get hung up on on potential problems they 'll have and I try to let them know that you know you issues you 're going to have no matter i mean if you make it uh, to age sixty you 're going to have some kind of issue anyway, so it 's all manageable and it's i 'm just glad to be alive
1: that's great that's great um, anditatra, I want to talk a little bit more about medical treatment and um,
3: uh, I also w- was
1: hoping you could tell our listeners about clinical trials, if you could tell folks what clinical trials are um, and, you know, why they're important and really what kind of research is, is, is being done to find new ways to treat pancreatic cancer.
4: Absolutely. Um, clinical trials are the process by which new treatments or new therapies are tested so that it's able to be shown that they're truly beneficial for a wide population of people. And clinical trials are necessary for any disease, especially some a disease like pancreatic cancer that has so few treatment options, but they're absolutely necessary in order to find treatments that extend life and improve quality of life. Both of those are equally important.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
4: Um, So I think it's important for people to remember that any approved therapy, any approved treatment, has gone through the clinical trial process, and that's the only way by which new treatments and new therapies can be approved for people to use. So really, participating in clinical trials is necessary to move progress and move research forward in finding better treatments
1: for pancreatic cancer. And are, are we seeing some promising research happening, in Nitra?
4: You know, yes, there are a lot of clinical trials that are open. Um, they're continuing to investigate new types of treatments for pancreatic cancer, Maybe not all chemotherapies, but involving things that are called targeted therapies, which target specific parts of the cancer cell instead of just trying to poison them, which is virtually how chemotherapy works. Or vaccine therapies, which aren't uh, preventative vaccines, but are treatment vaccines in that they try and have, make the body's immune system Recognize the cancer cells as foreign and attack and kill them that way. So there are um, a lot of a lot of different types of treatments that are currently being investigated in clinical trials.
1: Okay, good good news. Um, we've got just a couple minutes before the break, but I just want to move the conversation to, to. Obviously, this is a lot for for patients to handle, but I want to talk for a minute about family members. Uh, and loved ones. Jeff, uh, how did your diagnosis affect your family? Uh, how did it affect your fiancé? Um, what, what kind of support system did they have at that time?
3: Well, to be quite honest, it it, it had great effect on, we'll call her my fiancé, which we were not engaged at the time. Um, about three weeks into my therapy and with the, the prognosis that I had, which was not good, um, Sally, my wife, who's a critical care RN, um, asked me to marry her. Mm. And which which was such a such an awe inspiring action on her part, mm-hmm. and there, she made one promise. She made me make one promise though that I would stay around mm-hmm. to to stay married to her. So she was there for me from the very beginning.
2: The rest of my like family, Valley because might we've be, dealt might with cancer huh? so
3: often, um, it, they they were there all the time. I mean, they were there in any way, shape, or form they could, whether I was in the hospital, whether I was home, whatever they could do. So my family was a great support group.
1: And so, and if you have a lovely woman proposed to you, then that maybe helps to cure your pancreatic cancer.
3: It, you know, I always give her <laughs> ultimate credit for that, because it gave, it gave me a reason with that, after having made that promise, and every anniversary, she. Tells me, thank you for keeping your promise.
1: <laughs> good for you and good for her. That's a, that's a that's a wonderful story. It's wonderful. Um, and Anita, just quickly before we go to break, um, does Pancan also offer services for caregivers?
4: We absolutely do. And I think one of the most important one to highlight, um, just like Jeff is a survivor in our Survivor and Caregiver Network, we also have a lot of caregivers who have volunteered who are currently caring for a loved one that mm. is um, going through pancreatic cancer. So we can match um, caregivers up with each other to talk for shared experiences and support to really be there for each other as they're going through this journey.
1: So you're connecting patient to patient, caregiver to caregiver. You've really got this wonderful network of people from all over the country. Absolutely. Yep. That's fantastic. Fantastic. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Um, Today we are talking about pancreatic cancer, which, uh, as we know, can be a very challenging diagnosis. and. You know, we're really learning today, not, not, not good diagnostic tools, um, unfortunately, for this disease, and um, a little, really little known about the risk factors, um, but we are learning a tremendous amount uh, on the show today from uh, Jeff, who is a six-year-plus uh, uh, pancreatic cancer survivor, uh, and Anitra from Pancan. Um, we are going to take a quick break here on Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will be right back.
0: Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, education and hope. Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within, your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Corey sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. If you're just joining us, uh, we have been talking today about pancreatic cancer. Um, I am here with Anitra Engabretsen, who is the Director of Patient and Liaison Services at PANCAN, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, Uh, and our amazing guest, Jeff Ross, who is a six-plus-year pancreatic cancer survivor, an incredible story uh, of survival. um, And and, and Jeff, just such a wonderful attitude, and it's fantastic how you're giving back and and, uh, sharing your story with us today, sharing your story with so many Across the country, and also to, uh, talking to folks one-on-one uh, through PanCan, uh, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. So it's um, it's great to have you uh, uh, have you with us on the show today. Um, Thank you, Kim. Jeff, since your recovery, you've talked about becoming a survivor and caregiver network volunteer at PanCan. Can you describe a little bit more about the the program, about its benefits, and what you do in that role? Well. Uh,
3: yeah, I, I do quite a lot in that role. I mean, the, the basics of the role is, is from, from the way I began was I volunteered to become a phone buddy, as it were, for people who called in and wanted to speak to someone one-on-one, whether it be a, a, a recently diagnosed patient, someone who had already gone through surgery and was dealing with the aftermath, maybe a caregiver, family member. Um, and that was how I became involved in the uh, Survivor and Caregiver Network. And as I mentioned earlier, I've probably done about 150 different one-on-one phone conversations, and sometimes email. Sometimes people are a little shy and don't—they're not quite ready to talk one-on-one. They'd rather do it via email. Um, Since that time, I've expanded my role by volunteering for the organization to do any type of public speaking. Uh, I have—I'm speaking to some uh, advanced placement. Um, chemistry and biology students in a couple weeks about the organization and about pancreatic cancer specifically Mm. Um, and I'm always available to do interviews or programs such as this. What I try to do is instill two things. One, that there is hope that there 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 is a chance for survivorship and that a lot of that comes from within and also to bring um, as much of a spotlight to the disease as possible because we are so underfunded the the research is is, is so underfunded yeah. by the government and by other sources um and yet we are the fourth largest killer and the deadliest cancer actually um in the United States yeah yeah
1: Jeff do you ever get uh, do you ever get nervous um in terms of kind of talking to people one-on-one on on the phone? I mean, I know, obviously, you're not a medical uh, professional. Do you ever get nervous about maybe giving people advice or or giving people... You know the wrong advice or information,
3: well, or how, how do you how do you share what you share with them? And that's an interesting question, Kim. Uh, well, you know, being being a CPA by profession, I've I've learned long ago that you give your disclaimers up front. Yeah, and um, and that's exactly what I do. I, I I start off when I start speaking to the person and tell them I'm not a medical professional. So what I'm going to be. Telling you or sharing with you are my experiences and experiences from those I've spoken to in the past, and I always allay their, you know, their fears, and I and I try to bring it down to a one-on-one. It's just just like you're talking to a friend, and that's that's where I get. My energy back. Um, as far as do I ever get nervous? Sometimes it, when I when I hear certain stories from someone, uh, I, I've spoken. The youngest individual I spoke to, I believe, was a 24 year old father of two, and it was heartbreaking because he had stage four and his prognosis was. I think about two months, he was not, he was not operable. Yeah. And those kind of calls are heart-wrenching. I mean, I'll get off the phone and I'm in tears. Yeah. And, um, but as far as nervous, I'm, I'm, I've always been open about sharing my experiences. Um, yeah. I've never been one that would shy away from what I had when I had it my entire, I, I live in a small community and the entire community knew what I was going through. Yeah. Um, and they turned out for me as well. So, um, in answer to your question, no, I, I don't get nervous. And I also always make certain that the recipient of, of, of whoever I'm talking to yeah. understands that I'm not giving medical advice. Yeah. I'm giving my personal experiences and experiences that others have shared with me.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Anitra, do you do you? uh... when people call in and talk to your folks on the helpline do do people oftentimes want to talk about end-of-life issues
4: end-of-life issues do come up from time to time when people call into the PALS program Um, oftentimes if if we are talking about end-of-life it's frequently with the caregiver and they're wanting to explore um, what they might be looking out for or to be able to talk to another caregiver who has gone through end-of-life with their loved one so people do call us on the topic Um, One resource that we're able to offer that I um, am am very happy to be able to say we can provide is a booklet that describes hospice care. So if people are approaching that point in their journey and they're considering um, going into hospice, we have a booklet that we can send them that outlines some questions, things they may want to be thinking about, and really explains what hospice is and how it can be helpful for them.
1: Fantastic, we are nearing the end of our show i'm going to ask you each quickly if you would respond to the, to to, to, a, to a sort of a closing question um, if you could offer one piece of advice to someone uh, affected by pancreatic cancer um, well, you know what would you say to that person who's just been diagnosed Jeff uh,
3: to stay positive yep. to to stay focused and I mean, I, I have a list of things that I, and that, that's, a, that's a tough question as to what, what's the one thing. But to be selfish, it, it, it's a time when you need to be selfish for yourself, for your family, and those around you. And you need to hunker down and get, get ready for the fight. No matter, whether, no matter which direction it's going, you need to be ready to fight the good fight. Fantastic.
1: And Itra, quickly.
4: And I would say my one piece of advice would be to be informed. At whatever point in the pancreatic cancer journey people are, they should be educated about all of their options and make the decisions that are right for them and for their family.
1: Yeah, wonderful, wonderful advice. Um, You've both been terrific today. I can't thank you enough for, for being on the show, for Anitra sharing your expertise, and Jeff really sharing your personal story. And uh, it's wonderful uh, to have folks like you who are willing to get out there and speak and give folks some hope and motivation and give so much back of yourself. Um, if you would like more information about pancre- pancan- the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, you can call them at 877-272-6226, or you can visit their website www.pancan. That's P-A-N-C-A-N. dot o r g uh, if you would like information about the Wellness Community and Gildas Club and our educational and support services, uh, please call us at 888-793-WELL, W-E-L-L. Uh, mentioned earlier in the show that the Wellness Community and Gildas Club merged in July of this year to become the largest cancer support network um, across the country. Uh, you can also visit us at www.thewellnesscommunity.org to find a list of all of our sites around the country and all of our uh, educational resources and information online. Remember to follow this show, Frankly Speaking About Cancer, on Twitter uh, and get the latest in cancer in the news. You can also uh, provide us with feedback and let us know what show topics you'd like for us to cover in future episodes. So please tweet, let us know what's going on, let us know what you want to hear about uh, uh, in the future. We do We do our show every... Uh, Tuesday at 4 Eastern, and we would love to hear from you um, uh, about future topics. I want to dedicate our show today to the memory of Patrick Swayze and also to everyone affected uh, by by, uh, pancreatic cancer. And we also want to honor the folks there at Pancan, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, for helping to raise awareness of the disease fighting the fight on Capitol Hill Um, and uh, providing support and and, uh, education and a wonderful network to folks all over the country. Uh, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, be well, do well live
0: well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1pm Pacific Time and 4pm Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org That's thewellnesscommunity.org